Welcome to Meet the Manufacturers podcast, brought to you by Manufacture CT and sponsored by Cone Resnick. Advisory, assurance, tax, and online at coneresnick.com. On every episode, we take the opportunity to learn more about a local manufacturing business. Welcome to episode eight of Meet the Manufacturers, brought to you by Manufacture CT in association with Cone Resnick. On this episode, I will be speaking with Carmen Romeo, president of Farsha's Chocolates based in Waterbury, whose family business has been handcrafting gourmet chocolate since 1964. Now, this is my kind of podcast. Welcome to Meet the Manufacturers, Carmen. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Now, if coronavirus wasn't here, we would be doing a sampling session here. I am known for my sweet tooth, but uh, alas, we are virtual. So let's kick it off. Tell me a little bit about yourself and the company, 1964, you were founded. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, it's my mother and father-in-law who started the business out of their home. And it was a a little bit more than a hobby. My father-in-law wanted to make a little extra money while working really hard with three young daughters. They were in their home for 14 years. They would invite people down into their basement to buy chocolate. That's what my wife remembers was letting people into the basement to buy chocolate. So after 14 years of that, they finally did move out of their home into their first retail facility. But it was still part-time for my father-in-law. He would work full-time in a manufacturing job as a tool maker and then nights and weekends at the chocolate shop. Another seven years went by. So 21 total years before the business became something the family could actually live on. And all of them have been part of it. They moved once and then again. They were in one location for about 18 years until about 2008 when my in-laws in their late 60s, early 70s were still running the business, looking for a way out. When all of a sudden the landlord called and said, we sold the building. You got two months to get out. So imagine being kicked out of the place you've been doing business. (laughs) It was really a devastating time. Now, we were forced to move. Suddenly, we moved into an industrial park environment about a mile from where we exist here today. And it was a little dicey that first year. I mean, you're literally starting all over. My wife and her two sisters all had young children at the time. Meanwhile, during all this time, I am an engineer by training. I started my career with GE and I worked through lots of manufacturing facilities. While this was going on back in 2009, I was the general manager of a manufacturing company in Torrington, Connecticut. And um, it was a wholly owned subsidiary of a Minnesota-based company. And part of our strategy was to move the company, but I didn't want to go with it. And so it was a good time for me to convince my wife. And I really did have to convince her that we should do chocolate because she had grown up with it. She knows the trials and tribulations of a family business with holidays that are not yours anymore. And uh, it was a little bit of me convincing her that we should go into chocolate. Now, the space we were in had no retail component whatsoever, had no handicap accessibility, no visibility from the road, and it was less than half the size of what we needed it to be. So it was not a very easy time. My first real goal was to just be able to survive. And one of the things we got lucky with is more space became available. We moved next door and I took over the extra space, which barely got us back to able to work. But one of the things I did with that space was bring some people in and talk about chocolate. And that gave us the idea that when we were ready to actually buy a building and the building we're in today is own, we own it. 
Uh, so we're not going anywhere. It's a large facility with over 18,000 square foot of space. We turned it into a tourist destination. So while we are a manufacturer first and foremost, that is our heritage. That's our SIC code. We are a retailer of chocolates. We obviously, we wholesale, we sell business to business, business to consumer online, but we also have this destination, this event space where I teach people the origins of chocolate, how to make chocolate. And we've been blessed to have over in the almost eight years we've been in this building, over 45,000 visitors have listened to me talk about chocolate. Wow. You and I need to talk because I've got to say one of my specialist subjects in life is chocolate. I am ah. the biggest chocolate lover ever. Tell me a little bit about some of the products you make. What makes Farsha's chocolates so special? I think the thing that makes us the most special is that we do make everything in-house. Many chocolatiers specialize in one thing or another. Uh, maybe they buy a lot of stuff that they sell. We make everything. We are doing hand-rolled gourmet truffles, panning cordial cherries, which I would say very few chocolatiers do. But also we're coating potato chips and pretzels and Oreos and caramel and making caramel and meltaways and everything in between. So we're really running the whole gamut, well over 100 products. I've got almost 3,000 SKUs in terms of the overall product that we sell, in terms of the holidays and all of that. So it's, it's a little difficult to run with as many handmade products as we have. But no bad thing for the customer or your retail outlet, that's for sure. Choice is always good. Now, tell me, you obviously, the, the business was established in 1964. Is there some kind of family recipe that you've carried through the generations? Where's the heritage for the, for the recipes, if you like? Well, I will say that the, the chocolate industry is a very sharing industry. There are books, classes. You can learn how to make stuff from other people in the industry. And that's quite frankly how my father-in-law started. Now he self-taught, self-learned as far as reading books and learning how to do things better. And I'm sure he made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I know enough not to touch what I consider perfection. So many of our recipes are the recipes he started with. Uh, I've added to it. I not only learned from him, but I've been, you know, as an engineer, uh, I you know, have a science background and I've been able to go to many chocolate schools. So I've learned the science behind what actually happens in the kettle or on the marble slab. And it's a good blend. So I've added some things to the uh, mix that we do here. Um, gelato, we make our own gelato here in this location. That was something we didn't do prior to me coming. You know, I am now the recipe if you will, holder. I may I may be the one that <laughs> resists change even more than even my my wife and sister-in-laws. Wow, you are the master chocolatier of Farsha's chocolates. Now, talking about manufacturing, so I am a great consumer of chocolate, but I have very little knowledge about how it's made. Tell me a little bit about the manufacturing process on site. What machines do you use? Tell me a little bit about the technology sure. behind it. So one clarification, we are what is called a confectioner. And if you looked into our SIC code, we are uh, manufactured confections from purchased chocolate. And that it counts for the majority of the chocolate world. Even big names like Godiva, Russell Stover's, Whitman's, Cadbury, you know, these big companies don't make their own chocolate. In fact, even Hershey's, although they make some, they buy about three quarters of the chocolate that they use. There are four, wow. there are four companies that worldwide make well over 60% of the world's chocolate. So 
I feel cheated, Carmen, already. I feel cheated, but do well, I, I, I just wanted to mention, because the, the art and the science of making chocolate from a bean is something I can talk about a lot. We just don't do it here. So what we're doing is, is we're taking a very fine Swiss-style chocolate that we buy and buy it in its varieties of milk dark and white and darker darks, you know, bittersweet chocolates as well. The very first thing we do is melt it. So you have large melting tanks. A lot of our equipment, the tempering of chocolate is the science behind chocolate. If you do not temper chocolate right, if you don't take it from its melted state to its solid state the right way, it's not gonna be shiny, glossy, hard with a beautiful snap. The basics of tempering chocolate is about keeping it in motion and cooling it gently. And really equipment we have helps us move and make chocolate flow. Whether it's a coating and rober, whether it's a kettle, whether it's a pump for the chocolate to actually put chocolate into molds, you know, copper kettles that we're hand stirring. These are machines that help us do things by hand better than you can do it at home. But we're not really taking anything that can't be done at home. It's just a little bit larger scale that helps us do things on a continuous basis. So really, there's not a lot of magic in the equipment that we have here. And in fact, I will say that one of the most important tools we have is a marble slab. And many confectioners give up on their marble because they want to go faster. And when you're cooling a caramel from 250 degrees, you might want to get that cooled quicker. You might want to put it on a metal table that runs a coolant through it and get it down very quick. Well, we feel you lose flavor and texture. We use the marble. We let it sit for five or six hours or overnight. That's a secret. I'm not, well, I'm giving out the secret, but (laughs) the the handmade methods sometimes are the best methods, you get a better product. How many employees do you currently have in the business? People might be surprised. So we actually have, well, we're adding a couple this week. So by the end of this week, we will have 29 total employees, but only six are full-time. Our average is about 12 full-time people on a year basis. So we have a lot of part-time people. We employ a lot of youngsters, you know, high school and, and college students. We do need to help because we do 75% of our sales in just six months of the year. And even beyond in within those six months, it's about 11 weeks that we actually do the majority of our sales. And that is the holiday period from Thanksgiving through Hanukkah and Christmas, Valentine's Day and Easter. So we're very, very cyclical and it's hard to keep everybody working steadily throughout the whole year. No, of course. So you are the president now. You have this lofty title. What does your average day look like? Describe to me your, I guess, your role and responsibilities. Well, I love my title to first and foremost be son-in-law. Uh, that's that's really important because it really tells you my place in the business. Who's, who's really in charge? Well, <clears throat> I will listen to my wife. <laughs> Probably Wise over man. anybody. Wise man. <laughs> but But you know what? Uh, my mother and father-in-law at 85 and 81 respectively hold a lot of sway here. I give them all the leeway, but you know, they have a lot to say and they're listened to. So president might be an honorary title, but it just means I get all the blame and none of, I don't try to take any of the glory. And, you know, we're actually a growing business and I am transitioning from, I would say two years ago, I would have said I was a little more than a one man show because I did way too much. But 
fortunately, we've been able to add some staff. That six full-time I told you about, it was only two full-time just wow. three or four years ago. So we've added a few full-time people and I'm able to now focus on uh, many more things, but I'm still pro the primary salesperson. I'm still the primary uh, accounting and bookkeeper, but you know what? A typical day would start with me you know, going to Restaurant Depot to pick up some supplies first thing in the morning. I might be doing some moves, ads, and changes in the factory. Right about now, we have some expansion going on and I'm the one building racks and, and driving the, I'm the only one who drives the forklift here. How about that? <laughs> I love it. I love the fact that you're covering all facets of the role. It's uh, it's fantastic to have somebody who's obviously involved in the management of a company, but also very hands-on. No, I'm very hands-on. And, and the one thing I miss is the time to actually still be in the kitchen on a daily basis. I mean, I'm out there because I am the recipe person. I'm the diagnoser, troubleshooter, so to speak. If anything is not looking right, you know, I'm the person who does that. But I do miss, I would love to be able to structure my day where I would have an hour or two to cook my batch as a caramel and experiment a little more. Oh, it sounds like at the rate of expansion, that time maybe will come in the future. Thinking about your career, so you've been in manufacturing some time, aside from obviously chocolate. At what age did you begin to think that maybe a career in manufacturing was for you? Pretty early on. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I just didn't know what kind of engineer. I was uh, toying with being a civil engineer quite heavily, but I decided to be an electrical engineer. And my very first job out of school was with General Electric. And I became a sales guy, a technical sales guy. One of the first jobs I had on this training program was to be within a factory and be the product expert. And I was down in uh, Roanoke or Salem, Virginia. And uh, that was the first time I was in a manufacturing facility and really got to see the inner workings. I actually became an ISO 9000 auditor. I helped our factory achieve ISO 9000, and we're talking back in 1988. So uh, the, and, and GE at the time was just embarking on things like Six Sigma was actually new at that time. It had been done in other places, but GE was one of the very first companies under Jack Welch to take it into every facet of manufacturing. So I stayed within the product environment, the manufacturing environment. I did move out a little bit and become a national sales manager, a national account manager. And I did travel the world doing alliances and things with manufacturing companies. Uh, I was fortunate to win an award, a team of us at GE won an award from Intel for building their plants across the world to the right specifications and keeping them as similar as they can be. But from there, I did move into product management back into a factory within GE and uh, then left GE and became a product manager in a controls company. And again, as I mentioned, I was in a lighting company as a general manager and then another company that I was running was a fan manufacturer. So. You know, I've always been in manufacturing, even if I was on the sales or product end of things. Sounds like you've got both sides of the uh, the manufacturing business, if you like, covered there. What skills in those various roles have turned out to be kind of the most important to you with the work mm -hmm. that you're doing now? Conflict resolution. <laughs> um, <laughs> A family-run business and conflict resolution. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, to a degree. You know, I've had to unlearn some of my early training at GE. I will say that growing up in GE in the Jack Welch era really made you tough. 
anybody in that environment, you know, you had to stand up for what you believe in, you had to fight for what you believed in. And there was a lot of constructive conflict back then. I think that's the way he liked it. And that's what made that company in the 90s what it was. But consequently, when you're in a family business or when you're in other businesses that don't have that level of constructive conflict, you have to tone it down a little bit. So uh, <laughs> so that's, I guess, one of the things that I learned. And, and working with customers very much, you know, I've always been an alliance maker, a national account sales. You got to understand the customer side of things. You got to understand everybody's side of things when it comes to uh, trying to create new business and also internally. And so I pretty well-rounded uh, background and, and chocolate is fun. So that's the other thing that's nice is I'm not trying to ever sell people on an idea that they're not already bought into. Who doesn't like chocolate? There are a few people out there, but... Never trust somebody who doesn't love chocolate. That's my motto by life. No, <laughs> of my life. Uh, <laughs> thinking about the pandemic, thinking about this worldwide pandemic, has it affected your business in any way? Oh, incredibly. So, of course, the side of our business that was helping us grow and even do some leveling of our peak period was our, our tourist business, our events business, which immediately went to nothing back in March. And then with a lot of walk-in business, especially last April when Easter was just coming on, and things were so new, we had a switch to order entry, online orders, phone orders, and we were just not ready for something like that. So it's made us a better business because we've continued to work on that, that side of the business, the order processing and, and making things better. So we lost a lot of sales. It was a, for our second largest holiday to be 40% off was a pretty big blow. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the one thing that did help us was we were building our wholesale business and I was ready with merchandising. We had repackaged products to be able to show themselves well in places like a grocery store. Now, a lot of our wholesale customers a year ago happened to be in the tourist destinations. We had theaters, we had, you know, Palace Theater, Warner Theater. We had a few theaters like that. We had a lot of tourist destinations like the Mark Twain Museum. So these places were shut down. So a lot of our wholesale business was not there either. But we did, as the summer wore on, I started what I had planned to do prior to the pandemic, which was knock on some grocery store doors. And I'm happy to say that that's part of our business has done well for us over the last uh, six to eight months. We are uh, now in about 12 grocery stores that we were not in during the summer. So that's brilliant. It was timing thing, but we're doing well there. One of the things that wasn't good is a lot of what we do, and this is for the manufacturer CT community, a lot of our customers are businesses, are manufacturing businesses. They love to have their logo in chocolate for gift giving and employee recognition and client recognition. Uh, unfortunately, we heard from several of our largest customers who were not going to buy chocolate this past holiday season because nobody was in the offices. Their salespeople were not traveling around to their clients to give a box of chocolate at the holidays. So, yeah, of course. you know, it, it was not looking too good. And, and some of my, like I said, some of my larger clients informed me in October, sorry, we're not just not going to do it this year. So it was looking a little bleak. On the flip side, many uh, manufacturers did not have employee Christmas parties either. So very late in the game, decided 
let's give them a box of chocolate. So we actually held our own from a year over year basis and all the business we lost, we did gain some because people realized what a great gift it is to give chocolate. It's a gift that could be shared with a family. You know, if, if somebody was at home and one of their employees who may be working remotely or they didn't have the holiday party that they couldn't gather at, they gave them a box of chocolate. So we ended up with a decent Christmas and one company gave it to every employee they had and it was a significant company. So we had the largest order we've ever received this oh, past fantastic. holiday season. So I don't think the pandemic can keep people from eating chocolate because I will tell you nationally, <laughs> nationally, the confectionery industry and the fine confection piece of that is actually up nationally so i can well imagine i can well imagine people stuck at home i have smashed through more bars of chocolate than perhaps i should have i can totally see why that would happen it's great isn't it that something is life-changing as this pandemic has not only created some issues within manufacturing, you know, some of the supply chain situations, there are some positive stories to come out of it as well. And that's a perfect example. And if my boss is listening, where was my Christmas chocolates? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> you know, we have, we, we have, we have, I will just make a note that the supply chain has been very difficult. We have certainly noticed a supply chain with just freight and trucking. And I am literally waiting on a product now that's, that was sitting on a ship docked in Vancouver. It's a specialty starch coming from Asia. It's a, actually a new product that we're going to be doing for somebody. Uh, so it's not a product I normally source, but uh, it's being held up because of COVID. Yeah, I can well imagine. Just off a, a side question more than anything else, obviously I am a Brit. And we take our chocolate very, very seriously. And personally, I take it very seriously. I have a, a high ranking kind of top five chocolates that I adore. Talk to me about Cadbury's for a second, because this is my understanding and I may have it wrong. And I want to take this opportunity to ask you as you're an expert. So Cadbury's has been in Birmingham since time began in the UK. And they were always famous for their dairy milk chocolate, their, their milk chocolate, because it contained a glass and a half of milk. Now, the recipe changed about 10, 15 years ago, something like that, when it was bought by an American company. Now, the myth, and I'd like to know if it's real, was it? a cost-saving measure by an American company to save money by taking away my glass and a half of milk? Uh, in a word, yes. Oh! Uh, in a word, yes. Well, there's a little bit of a process thing. Um, you, you don't actually get your glass and a half of milk. I will say that that's a nice thing that they could market, but... Uh, <laughs> Chocolate is an oil-based product. Cocoa butter is an oil. Mm -hmm. Milk is a water-based product. The two mm -hmm. don't mix. So you actually are only talking about milk solids. So okay. you'll never get a glass and a half. All right. Milk. Okay. Marketing okay. was good on that. <laughs> All right. But the process of that milk, how that milk becomes dried does change. And I can tell you that. And, and here's another little tidbit. Milk chocolate was invented in Switzerland by a gentleman by the name of Daniel Peter in 1865. Hallelujah, and, uh, that man. We love him. <laughs> Daniel is my best friend. Da Daniel Peter. And you know what? One of his best friends was a guy named Henri Nestle. Oh, and uh, Mr. Nestle, actually 30 years, Daniel Peter was the first to do it. He actually cooked his milk to get 
the water out of it. That was the initial way of getting it done. Consequently, it had a little caramel taste to it. We actually use a chocolate that is the Peters brand. It's got that original recipe. What Mr. Nestle invented years later was a way to get the water out of milk through dehydration and freeze drying. And that's the majority of what the uh, world uses today. Mr. Hershey learned that method. Cadbury stuck with the traditional way, which is kind of the way our chocolate tastes. It's a Swiss style chocolate. Very, I think you would like it very much if you liked Cadbury in the UK. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? It's also the American palate. So I actually still think that there is some Cadbury that you could buy in the UK that's better than its namesake here in the United States. Uh, Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) Having only been here a couple of years, I've got to say, the the one thing I really did notice is the difference in the taste of chocolate. So previously I had switched from Cadbury's to Milka and Milka became my chocolate of preference, I guess. You know, I have lint every now and then, but Milka was my daily go-to over Cadbury's some time ago. I'm afraid they lost my patronage. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. But Cadbury, you're right. They they have uh, kind of sold out here in the U.S. for the U.S. palette, which is not very good when it comes to chocolate. I can't say anything, but I am going to be taking a clip of that and sharing it with my friends all around the world. More about you, Carmen. Tell me a little bit about you on a personal level. What would you say are are three people or figures in history who have had perhaps the biggest impact on your life or your career? Well, that's a big question. Um, You know, it's people I know, nobody really famous, I will have to say. It's uh, People I know from childhood, you know, a scoutmaster comes to mind in the Boy Scouts. A professor comes to mind. And and, and just even my own father and my father-in-law, much later in life, you know, been in the family now for 26 years. So I was uh, just a young one at about 30 years old when I met him. So he had a big impact. You know, it's work ethic. It's treating people the way you want to be treated. So I really can't name you anybody famous. I w- I've mentioned Jack Welch before. Now, I didn't know Jack Welch personally. I only was in the same room as him once during my 13 years at GE. But, you know, he would have been an influence as well, but just from afar. But close to me, you know. I'm a sports fan. I, I love sports. So I'm a Red Sox fan, a New York Giants fan, uh, University of Connecticut fan. So there's a lot of people that I have certainly got inspired from. But most of my true mentors have been people really close to me. So when you're not working, what do you like to do to relax and unwind? And don't tell me eat chocolate. Please don't. I, I, <laughs> that would I just absolutely be do eat chocolate. There's no doubt about that. Good boy. Um, you know, yes. I will be honest. I am learning, relearning how to not work all the time. Taking over this business at, you know, in my mid 40s, I gave it seven days a week, a good solid 80 hour weeks for a long time. It was a survival mode. And my kids grew up knowing, I mean, they're, they're now 21 and 22. So they're eight, nine, 10, you know, 10 years old. When all of a sudden life goes from traditional, somebody pays your bills, you go on vacation, you don't really worry too, too much about money. You have all weekends and nights to yourself, unless I was traveling and I did travel for business a lot to literally, I mean, I didn't travel anywhere for the chocolate work, but I was working all the time. So I will say now golf is one of my passions 
I need to get my golf game back to what it was 15 years ago before I came into the chocolate <laughs> business. And uh, I did, you know, COVID actually helped me with one thing. I had started 2020, long be before the pandemic arrived, and I had decided that my resolution was going to be to limit my work and try to take more time off. And COVID actually helped that because it forced it and forced, you know, closure on Sundays and we didn't have all the events going on. So I stopped a seven day a week schedule and we've continued that coming out of COVID a little bit. I'm not going to go back to a seven day a week schedule. Uh, we'll, we'll do it if it needs to happen on a specialty basis, like the holidays, we do open seven days a week, but play more golf, I think. And, you know, it's traditional spend time with my family, but we're also wrapped up in the business. There have been times when the business is closed. I will say like the, you know, on a holiday period and I've come in and it's been me, my wife and my two kids here. And they're the ones who asked to come in because they have a passion for the business as well. So Fantastic. the business is family, I guess. It's a family business. And are they showing any signs of uh, wanting to take over and be the next generation? I have a daughter who is, I'm very proud of, who's graduating uh, with a dual degree in civil engineering and economics. And she has accepted her dream wow. job with a multinational company. She'll be living in Manhattan this summer and she's off and running. So no, she does work here and, and she has passion for the business, but no future. My son is a junior in college, business major, and has been a huge instrumental part of our recent growth because he has helped my wholesale business. I couldn't get out on the road. One of the things I didn't mention before when I said we expanded our growth in wholesale to grocery stores, part of it was because I had him and I trust my son implicitly as an ambassador for our business. So he, and I won't say single-handedly, but I give him a huge amount of the credit. He's able to handle the orders, talk with the customers, drive it and deliver our chocolate to all of our locations. He's out on the road three, four, five days a week. Now, do I think it's in his future? Yes. We've candidly talked about the succession plan and uh, the intent for both of us is that he go work elsewhere out of college. If he chooses not to, I'll quietly be happy and he can come straight into the business. But if he, you know, the plan would be go do something else. I feel old. I'm an old guy. I'm in my, I, actually, I'll turn 56 in just a couple of days here. You're so. not old. You are not old by a long <laughs> no, way. You've got I, plenty of years to groom in. I got plenty <laughs> of years here. I'm not going anywhere, which just means that I've got plenty of time to have him ease back into the business if he chooses. So I'm not thinking about that next stage of our business because I've got so much more time left to give it. Yeah, and so much to give, which kind of leads me on to this question, which is what are your predictions about the future of manufacturing, you know, not just with your own business, but in general with manufacturing here in Connecticut? So as a, a member of Manufacturer CT and also a board member of another manufacturing association, I see a lot of manufacturers and I, I think it's nothing but bright. I'm very, very optimistic on manufacturing in Connecticut. I mean, I'm here sitting in Waterbury, the old brass capital of the world. 
those factories are being torn down, but what's coming in its place with Industry 4.0, Manufacturing 4.0, with all the high-tech stuff going on and the kind of workforce we have, it's just we need more people. And with more people, and if the you know regulators get out of the way and just let us produce, Manufacturing's Best Day is still ahead of it in Connecticut. I couldn't agree more. Carmen, it has been such a privilege to speak with you today. I very much look forward to a little trip, I think, to Waterbury is in order for me. So uh, we can talk chocolate some more and maybe sample some as well. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute privilege. You're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of Meet the Manufacturers, brought to you by Manufacture CT. If you would like to find out more about Manufacture CT or you would like to join the organisation, you can visit the website manufacturect.org. This podcast is sponsored by Cone Resnick, one of the largest accounting, tax and business advisory companies in the United States. Visit their website for more details, coneresnick.com. Cone Resnick. Advisory. Assurance tax.